so as I just prayed, when you look at, when you open up the scriptures and you see God, the first thing you see is that he is a God who speaks. Our God is a God who speaks. You see that in creation, in the beginning, the first words of your Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse three, and God said, God spoke. He said, let there be light and there was light. God speaks creation into being. When there was nothing except God, God speaks creation into being. We see not only does he speak creation into being, but when creation exists, he makes himself known. He speaks to his people and makes his character known, what he is like known. He's not far off us having to guess at what he's like based on what we think. Rather, he comes down to us and speaks. Psalm 103, verse seven, he made known, he spoke, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Exodus 34, five through seven, as Moses is up on the mountain and says, I wanna see your glory, God says, I'll pass before you and declare, I'll say my name, my character to you. Exodus 34, verse five, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, Moses stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, spoke the name of the Lord. He passed before him and proclaimed, spoke, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Up to this point, what's God like? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's all the scriptures have revealed about his character. And then God himself comes down and says, this is what I'm like, made known his ways to Moses. So he speaks creation. He reveals his character. He's given us the scriptures. He's given us his written word. Holding in your hand every morning in your quiet time, you're not just holding another religious book and finding some morals. You are holding in your hand the words of the God of the universe. He has spoken. He has given us his written word and then eternally spoken by his eternal son, Jesus. The eternal word made flesh. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, long ago, At many times and in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right? The prophets show up and say, thus says the Lord. Look at verse two. But in these last days, our days, he has spoken to us, spoken by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know what God is like? Look at the sun. Look at the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Your God is the speaking God. He is the God who speaks. And because that is true of him, what is true of us, our fundamental position is that we listen. He is the speaking God. He holds our life in his hands and we fundamentally listen. By the very nature of us being creature and him being the speaking creator, we listen to his words. And yet we have the grace, we have the unbelievable privilege to speak ourselves in light of his speech. So he speaks and he doesn't just say, be quiet and only listen to my words. He says, you speak in light of my words. You use your words in light of my words. So think about Adam naming the animals. Think about what a unthinkable privilege that is for Adam. God creates, speaks them into being and he tells Adam made in his image, you get to name them and all of creation will call them the name that you name them. You speak in light of our speech, even now, or uh, God's speech. We, as Christians, get to declare the divine mysteries of God, Colossians 4, 3. At the same time, pray for us, or pray also for us, this is Paul speaking, that God may open the door for the word to declare the mystery 
of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Christ hidden in God, now revealed to us Christians, and we have the glory, the privilege to declare, we speak his speech of his son. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul, again, talking about his ministry. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the God who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give, to declare, to speak the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We declare the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ because he has shown it in our hearts. And lastly, we get this picture, we're ambassadors for Christ. What does an ambassador do? They speak the will of their king, of their leader. We are ambassadors for our king Jesus. So we speak in light of his speech, and sin, by its very nature, is all of this that we're just talking about totally turned on its head. We're meant to listen to the God who speaks, and our speech is in light of his, and I'm saying speak and speech a lot. What is sin? Don't listen to his words. Listen to the words of the serpent that says his words surely won't die, right? Doubt his words, and then we get to speak by our own desires, our own passions, what we think is right. I say what is good and what is evil. I will decide and say, this is good, this is evil, and it's good for me to eat of the fruit that God said, do not touch it. Do not eat of it. You see that. We're meant to speak in light of his speech, his words. Sin by its very nature is speaking contrary, speaking by our words, listening to another voice rather than his. So this is our fundamental reality. He speaks, we listen, we speak in light of his speech. And because of this, it is absolutely necessary for us to function as those made in his image and especially as those who have been redeemed and brought into his family to hear. It is absolutely essential that we hear his words. And so today we're going to talk about the spiritual disciplines that you do in order to hear better in order to listen, namely silence, solitude, and meditation. So you want to think about it this way. Silence, shutting your, your words, shutting your mouth to hear God, shutting down your words to hear God's words. Solitude, shutting down the world's words, shutting the world's mouth to hear God, and meditation, soaking in what you hear. So silence, shutting your mouth, Solitude, shutting the world's mouth, meditation, dwelling, soaking in what you hear. So this would be difficult in any day because of our sin nature. We, have a, we, we love the sound of our own voice. But in our day, again, it is, I, I think, I think I'm right, the loudest, fastest, uh, most entertained, most accessible. You've got a TV in your pocket You've got social media, you've got every news alert of every bombing that happens on our globe in your pocket instantly, demanding that you care about it. Not just listen, but have an opinion and voice your opinion. And if you don't, our society says, you don't care. You're evil, you're wicked, you're uninterested. If you don't voice an opinion on every possible political position and you're told the world will stop spinning if you don't engage Oh my goodness, what would happen if our opinions weren't known on this situation? How would, how would people know what was right if I don't engage, right? And tell them what is right. That is our society today being told over and over, make noise, join in the screaming. And if you don't, you must be wicked, you must be evil. Though we weren't made to carry the world, the weight of the world on our shoulders, we have a society that demands that we do. And so, not only is it just difficult by the nature of our sinful hearts, our hearts bent towards sin this side of eternity, we have a society that pressures us, join in the screaming. So if we are going to live as we were meant to, who hear God and speak in light of his speech, we need to practice silence, solitude, and meditation, or else the world, the, the speed of our world, the loudness of our world will simply wash us away. And so... If I can give you a picture that we'll keep coming back to throughout these uh, different disciplines. Imagine you are in a rushing river and you're splashing and it's chaos and you're just being 
taken along and that river is just your life for our world and you're going and going and it's just chaos and there's no rest and you're just maintaining. You're trying to tread water. You're certainly not in control or anything like that. These three disciplines, silence would be you, you no longer splashing around. You can actually, okay, I'm, I'm swimming and let me just take a breath and I'm, I'm stop being my own worst enemy. Solitude will be swimming to the shore and sitting down, taking a break. Okay, there's the river. You can actually get your bearings, see what's going on. And meditation would be taking in. Okay, the river is flowing, but look, there's trees. I didn't even notice these trees. I was too busy splashing around and trying not to die. But now I see these trees and I see the clouds and the sunny day that's actually around me. And I hear the, the birds singing. And you just get a chance to breathe and to think and to reflect, and to set your eyes on God. And then when you get back into the river, you can swim rather than splash. Okay, so that's a sense, in a sense what we're trying to do here is just get our bearings, set our eyes by whatever means necessary on the peace that surpasses all understanding, on our Savior who's meant to give us rest, life, hope, boldness, passion in the midst of a chaotic world where we look like we're from another world. We don't belong in this one. We don't join in the noise. We bring peace. We bring blessing in the midst of the hatred and the anger. That's the hope between or with all these different meditations. So let's look at the first one. Silence. Shutting your mouth to hear God. <laughs> Stopping your words to hear God's words. Because he is the God who speaks and we live in a deafeningly loud world that we contribute to, we must learn how to shut our mouths and practice silence to hear the Lord, hear the word of the Lord. And I have a definition for silence. The definition is right. You guys don't need me to teach you what silence is. I just did it. Right. You hear that ringing. Does anybody else hear a ringing when you're quiet? Is that just, do I have an ear problem? Okay. We got some of you. Silence, right? So I, I, I don't have any explanation what silence is. You just do it. Quit talking, and that's silence, and we'll talk through now. What are some of the reasons why? Why is this so important? Why is it important that you just zip it, right? You just, shh, just who is it? I'm Dr. Evil, just, zzz, I got a little, with your name on it. Just be quiet. Number one, okay, we'll go off on that. That wasn't in the notes. This is why it's important to have a manuscript in front of you. Uh, number one, why should we be quiet? Why should we practice silence? Number one, silence teaches you that we live by every word out of the mouth of God. If you want an overall banner verse for this subject, it would be Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Of the Lord. We'll look next week when Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days and the devil himself is tempting him. He's going to use this, this verse to fight the temptation. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word out of the mouth of God. You don't depend on your own ability to get in and navigate situations and just talk your way out of things. Rather, you depend on his word. You're meant to hunger for his words in the same way that you would hunger for food. If it's true that that's our fundamental reality, he speaks, we listen. Silence brings us back to that fundamental reality and puts our feet on the foundation that we live by his words, not our own. And when we're quiet, we can actually see that. There's a sense in which we have the truth in our head. Yeah, that's a nice verse. Probably most of us knew Deuteronomy 8. But we also probably have the uh, understanding of, yeah, but you don't know like my day-to-day. -day. I'm, I'm, I have to talk my way. I have to rely on my charisma to get, to get, my, to get out of things and, and things like that. Silence actually teaches you, no, 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 no. Let your experience align with what you believe. You are not sustained by your own words, but rather by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Psalm 37, 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still. 
Quit acting, quit talking, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. The psalmist talking where he's, all the situations where you're like, I could do this and get ahead and look, so-and-so's doing exactly what I could be doing and they're getting ahead. Look at how they're prospering. And the psalmist is saying, no, 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 no. Remember fundamental reality. Wait patiently. Fret not about what's happening with the man who is trusting in his own works. Wait upon the Lord. Be silent and wait patiently for him. You do not need your words to sustain your own life. You do need his. And silence will teach you that. Will actually let you see how unnecessary your words are and it will actually make you grow more desperate for his words as you're meant to be. Scripture memorization and things like that aren't just, you know, Christians do this and it's nice to say I have, you know, Ephesians memorized or whatever. It's not just a nice tag along. It is meant to be desperation. I have to, I live by every word out of the mouth of God. I need to consume this. This needs to drive my life. When I slam into a situation that would make me stressful and anxious and instantly turn to my own abilities, how do I get out of that? I need truth flooding into me, combating those lies from the enemy. That is why you consume God's word. Silence teaches you that you live by God's word. Number two, very practical, Silence stops your words so that you can hear. You can't hear while you're talking. How many times are you in a fight with a friend or a spouse? And hey, can, I finish? <laughs> can I finish my sentence, please? And then you can give your, right? That's not how I fight. I'm very much more holy than that. But you see what I'm saying? You can't hear while you're talking. So silence shuts your mouth and you can actually hear the words of God that you must hear, that you are dependent so let me give uh, my biggest clarifier probably of the, of the whole talk. When I talk about hearing the words of God, I don't mean uh, what no one thought for the majority of church history until uh, the charismatic movement over the last hundred years, uh, which is go read the tea leaves. When you have a big decision in your life, typically what we do is depart from Christianity and take kind of Eastern religion and then throw Christian language on it to where we're like listening for an audible voice or we're waiting you know, for God to just like, show me a sign. Okay, I passed three stop signs. I think that means don't move because that's a bad idea, right? You treat God like a magic eight ball or something. Don't do that. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that God who has already spoken by his word, let his truth flood into your heart. So 2 Timothy 3.16, we quote this verse often. All scripture is breathed out, notice that, spoken, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for, the training, for training in righteousness that the man and woman of God might be, uh, might be complete, not partially trained, but complete and equipped for every good work. He has already said everything in his word that you might be equipped for every good work. Work okay. You don't need to stress about searching for the will of God outside of the scriptures as if he said, here's my Bible that's gonna give you most of it, but then I need you to lose sleep at night and you know, go, I don't know, look for stop signs. I use that example because I heard that a lot uh, in the past uh, for my secret hidden will that I'm not gonna tell you if it's right or not. Again, remember how we started this. That is the opposite character of the God of the Bible who makes himself known. Do this is what our God says over and over and over again. And he's given us his scriptures that we may be a complete equipped for every good work. Now, second clarifier. That doesn't mean that every time you're quiet, you just only need scriptural Bible verses popping in your head or else it's not the Lord you know, laying something on your heart or things like that. What I mean more is the Lord will never lay something on your heart or speak to you or whatever verbiage you want to use outside of the bounds of his scriptures. Uh, having spent several years in more charismatic context, this is one of the most common conversations I have is God said this, and I could just say, hey, I love you. I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm, I'm positive he didn't say that because God already said this here in 2 Corinthians, which is the opposite of what you're saying. 
And so I think, you know, you should submit it to what he's already said. But there's sometimes in silence where God can just remind you of his character. You're wrestling with feeling like God is distant and far off, and then you go sit in silence, and all of a sudden the goodness of God floods into your heart. Not a verse about how you know, he's good and all he does is good and things like that, but just the goodness of God, a, a character attribute floods into your heart or he gives you peace about a situation or you are nervous. Should I go take this job or that job? They both seem equally, uh, equally valuable and you're not trying to read the tea leaves of which one is highlighted on a map or anything like that, but God just gives you an overwhelming peace. Of, I, I, I think he's leading us this way. There's freedom. I'm not sinning if I choose this one instead of that one, but I think he's leading us this way. I'll give you a couple examples. I'm reading an autobiography now uh, by a missionary, 19th century Scottish missionary named John Patton. I think it's the best uh, autobiography I've ever read. And he uh, was a missionary in Glasgow, or uh, he worked for a missions organization in Glasgow, in Scotland. So he hasn't become a missionary yet, and it's majorly successful. Hundreds of people uh, that are poor and homeless are coming into his kind of Sunday school classes every night, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and no one had been able to break in until him. And so there's all this fruit happening. And then he just slowly, seemingly randomly, begins to feel a burden to go across the world, off the coast of Australia to the New Hebrides, where he knew there were people who had not heard uh, the gospel on these, on these islands. And he just begins to lose sleep at night. And he can't think about anything else. And he's praying and he's seeking wisdom and he's talking to other people and he's talking to his elders and his parents and things like that. And he eventually concludes, I think, I mean, who else would be laying this seemingly random burden on my heart? But the Lord, I feel like I I must go. And so God can do that. There's a time, a second example, uh, Claudia and I were in Israel. And when you go to Israel, some of you I I know are going with, Jeff next year uh, to Israel. So we're in Israel and we're on big tour bus, real fun. Uh, and you're going around and the whole time you're just like, oh my gosh, this is, you're just in the world of your Bible. And so you're standing in Jerusalem and you're like, here's where David did this. And that's where Jesus did this. And you're looking in the same spot and it's, it's really cool and mind blowing. But the whole time there's this, this urgency of, do you think his foot stepped on this rock? Or you think this is where he did the miracle and there's a church everywhere saying this is where the wedding of Cana was and then the Eastern Orthodox are over here and saying, nope, it was over here. And the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox fight it out and you don't tell anybody that you're Protestants, you know, because you don't want to be everyone mad at you. Uh, and so the whole time you're like, do you think he's here, here? And we were in Capernaum uh, where he's you know, healing Peter's mother-in-law and here's where Peter's house was and here's the temple where he cast out this many demons. And so the whole time you have this attitude and we went to the shores of Capernaum. They gave us like 30 minutes to walk around and Claudia and I go down to the shores of the Sea of Galilee and we're just sitting there in silence. We didn't say let's practice silence, but we just sat there, not talking, just looking at the sea. And I'm just starting to think and thinking about what the urgency of 2,000 years ago, do you think Jesus walked here in that attitude? And then randomly, the, the truth of the indwelling spirit rushed into my heart and thinking, here I am looking of maybe 2,000 years ago, something happened here. And then I just hear the God that I'm searching after dwells within me all the time. And I hear the end of the gospel of Matthew. I am with you always to the end of the age. And shocker, I just start... <laughs> crying, (laughs) started uh, weeping, but no words had been said. And so Claudia's just like, and looks over at me and I'm just, tears are streaming down. And she's like, what, what is happening? And so I told her, but again, I'm just truth floods into my heart. So you see the difference there. Hopefully that's clear. The difference between, I hope God's not mad at me. If I choose the wrong thing, let me read the tea leaves and just letting his truth flood into your heart. That's what I mean about hearing, shutting your mouth to hear God's voice. When we stop our words, when we practice silence, you can hear better. Why? Because all you're doing is listening. All you're doing is listening. You're not worried about what to say next or anything like that. Know this, my brothers, James says in James 1.19, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Every single week, I think this is true, every single week in my sermon, I'm prepping during the week and 
every time I'm just overwhelmed by God's word and crying uh, and just like, how am I going to take this truth that is just so magnificent and so beautiful and say it? My words are just going to make this worse. That's what I feel like every single week. And I don't know how to outline it and what analogies or application am I going to use and all that stuff. And then I typically frustratingly give up and go for a walk. And in the silent walk, everything just goes, and I think, okay, that's how, right? Just silence, just shutting my ignorant little mouth for two seconds typically is what makes everything actually come together. Number three, silence shows you that your words aren't needed, but God's are, right? Again, we all fall into the temptation. If anyone would, if everyone just listen to me, I've got it. I've got the way that we should go. I've got the way that our country should be run or whatever, or this social gathering needs me at the center of it. Right, I need to, what would they do if they don't have my charisma to feed off of, things like that. Silence shows you all that's not true. The world will be just fine when you die. By the way, it's going to happen. Everyone's going to move on, okay? And the world will be fine. Keep spinning, right? It's a good and humbling thing to know deeply my words aren't needed here. Everything will be fine. Everyone will be fine if my words simply stop. However, the world would stop spinning if God stopped telling it to. There is only one whose words absolutely determine the continuing order of the universe. Donald Whitney, who wrote, we've quoted him a lot, he wrote a book on spiritual disciplines, says this, on a long fast, you discover how much the food you normally eat is really unnecessary. When you practice silence and solitude, you find that you don't need to say many things that you think you need to say. In silence, we learn to rely, on, or rely more on God's control in situations where we would normally feel compelled to speak or to speak too much. We find out that he is able to manage situations in which we once thought our input indispensable, okay? Silence sanctifies you in that way. It also sanctifies you to learn to control the tongue. Don Whitney again says this, learning to keep silent for extended periods of time can help us control our tongue all the time. Uh, I talk a lot, a lot, like annoyingly so, Always talking, so the Proverbs are like aimed right at me and saying, hey, all that you do, just quit it, and wisdom, you know, there's some wisdom for you. Let's read a bunch about people who talk like me. Proverbs ten nineteen: when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains, restrains his lips is prudent. Psalm, or Proverbs 17, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Proverbs 21, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. This is a side benefit of being quiet, to hear the words of God as you learn to control your tongue all the time. Number four. Silence teaches you to wait upon the Lord and trust in his sovereign hand, to wait when there's that impulse of jumping in and fixing something that you'll often make worse by trying to fix it. Psalm 62, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. Not just waits, waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. Verse 5, for God alone my soul waits in silence, for my hope is from him. He alone is my rock and salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. Isaiah 28, famous verse. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he who does not faint or grow weary, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increase, or, uh, increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. You learn to wait on the Lord in 
silence. It also gives you perspective. As you wait upon the Lord, you get an eternal growing perspective that you might live in light of eternity. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Your words will be forgotten. You will be forgotten. His word will never be forgotten. Silence teaches you to live in light of eternity. And then lastly, uh, silence, there's a way in which practicing silence just stirs worship in your heart. Zephaniah 1.7, be silent before the Lord. The day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. Habakkuk 2, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Often kind of the height of worship is just silently standing in awe. There's a, a clip from Parks and Recreation. Jeff quotes the office. I'll quote Parks and Recreation. Uh, where April and Andy, a couple, April's real cynical and hates everything. And they go on a trip and they arrive at the Grand Canyon. And it's the end of an episode. And they're just standing at the Grand Canyon and just in awe. And April says, I'm trying to find a way to be annoyed at it. But it's, uh, I'm coming up empty. And then Andy says, where are the faces of the president's? Uh, right? Something like the Grand Canyon. You just stand in awe where your words fail. That's often the height of worship. Uh, John or George Whitfield at his conversion says this, God was pleased to pour into my soul the great spirit of supplication, a sense of his free distinguishing mercies, and so fill me with love, humility, and joy, and holy confusion that I could last on, at last only Pour out my heart before him in awful silence. And he doesn't mean horrible silence. He means standing in awe, silence. I was so full that I could not well speak. Often silence just lets you marvel at the infinity of your God. Who is a God like that who holds the trillions of, universe, or of, of galaxies in his hand who is mindful of me? who knows the hairs on my head, and when I did nothing but rebel against him and curse his name, sent his son to go after me. Who is a God like that? You have entered to this point of just saying, I just want to be quiet and bask in your glory. As I gaze in your beauty, my words are not necessary. You just sit in silence and say, wow, I, you're just at a loss for words. So silence teaches you to worship in that way. So how? Practically, how do you practice silence? Again, these aren't exhaustive. These are just my thoughts. Uh, obviously, the first one is just plan for it. Set aside time to be silent. Now, clarifier, I do not mean neglect your responsibilities. Do not think, you know, I think I'll be silent today. And then your spouse is like, hey, can you help me get the kids ready? And you're like, What do you want me to do? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm being silent, right? Don't do that. Rather, carve out time in your schedule, okay? If, if your spouse is going to hang out with her friends or his friends, don't fill your time with TV or something like that. Set aside half an hour to just go sit in the backyard and, and just look at the sky and just be silent in the Lord's presence. Don't fill your time with other things. Carve out time to be silent. Second, find times during your day for quick little two-minute, three-minute, four-minute moments of silence, okay? A meeting is over rather than rushing to lunch or something like that. Go sit somewhere and be quiet for five minutes and think and reflect and think about God and just sit there. Right? The kids go down for rushing and, and doing the laundry or washing the dishes that have been waiting to be washed so that you can make dinner. Just sit for five minutes, quick little times of silence. Find places of silence uh, that you could be silent. It's difficult if you just have a boring room and you're staring at a, a wall, you're just going to, your mind's going to wander. If you can find a, a place where you can go on a walk or a place in your house where you pray and things like that, go there, find a nice place to be silent. And then lastly, just, you will have to fight for this. We say this with every discipline. You will have to fight for this or else it won't happen. Jim Elliott says, I think the devil has made it his business to monopolize on three elements 
noise, hurry, and crowds, Satan is quite aware of the power of silence. You will have to fight for this. So that's silence. That's the biggest one. These all overlap, by the way. You, you see that. Number two, solitude. So you shut your mouth. Solitude is shutting the world's mouth so that you can hear God. You're going down the river. Silence is you're no longer splashing, making it worse for yourself. You can actually tread water and, and breathe a bit. Solitude is swimming to the shore and sitting down, right? going out of the rushing River Again, over and over and over again, we see Jesus do this when there is a lot to do. I have, if you've got the notes, uh, I have a whole bunch of verses there. Look down at the last one, Mark 1, 33. That evening at sundown, they, he's in a city, they brought, uh, brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, right? A lot of work to do. There's demon possession. There's sick people that need healing. And the whole city was gathered together at the door and he healed many of them who were sick and of various diseases and cast out many demons, but he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him, verse 35, and rising very early in the morning. He doesn't sleep in when he's almost certainly exhausted. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon, notice Peter's attitude when he shows up. Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. When there is a lot to do, Jesus leaves the busyness to get alone with his father and pray. If you wait until the busyness dies down, you will never get alone. You will probably have to have people think bad of you. Look at all these responsibilities you're neglecting, Jesus. Aren't you the healer? There's tons of people needing your healing. What are you doing out here having your quiet time? Right? Jesus is very well aware of how foolish those thoughts are, and he doesn't live by them. He isn't enslaved to them. He gets alone over and over and over again. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, over and over again teaching, when you pray, go pray before your Father who is in secret. And let the Father who is in secret see your prayer, see your fasting, see your giving. Now, clarifier, I don't mean what the Desert Fathers did where you remove yourself completely from society for your whole life. You are called to be around people, but there will be a necessary time to withdraw to be with the Lord. So why do we do this? Number one, to set your eyes on God. Hebrews 12, uh, I have a quote there from Don Whitney, we'll skip that. Hebrews 12 gives us this picture of how we're meant to live this life. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin and weight which cling so closely. The sin and the weight isn't just, I guess I'll, Carefully lay this down. It clings so closely. Lay it aside and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Your heart bent towards sin, the loud world that we live in will force your eyes down to look at yourself, to look at your own efforts. And one of the things solitude does in quieting all that noise and laying aside the sin and the weight and the noise and all those different things is let your eyes go back up and set them on the Savior we're meant to be looking to as we run the race with endurance. That's the first, to raise your eyes to Jesus. Number two, to rest in God, to rest from all the busyness. In the same way, R&R is helpful for just your work because it actually brings you physical rest, you can recover. Solitude is meant to teach you Spiritual rest by looking to God and seeing his perfect control over everything in your life. This situation that I don't know how I'm going to get through and I don't have enough time in the day to get through it, you see that. You've laid that on my plate and you've perfectly given me the grace and you will bring this to completion. You're, you're in charge of absolutely everything. It gives you uh, the ability to kind of zoom out and breathe a little bit and stop drowning in all the busyness. Okay? You're sitting on the shore and you can actually notice the trees. You've been drowning and now you can notice the things around and breathe a little bit and rest. Number three, solitude teaches us to live in light of God and his word. If life, if eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, we need to know him. 
He's not just a, a power source. He's not just who you go to. Don't, don't picture solitude as my battery is drained. I'm going to go get recharged and then leave God and go back into the busyness until my battery is drained again. He's not just a, a power source. Rather, he is our breath. He's our life. He's our joy. Robert Murray McShane, who I quote every week, talks about his quiet time. He spends, you know, an hour or two in the morning and he says, this isn't, I don't, I don't have this time with the Lord as to store up manna for the day, as to say, here's my time with God, and then I, hopefully it will sustain me throughout the day. Rather, he says, to give the eye the habit of looking up all the day and drawing down gleams from a reconciled countenance. The point of your solitude isn't to just get quickly recharged, to go get drained again, but rather to teach your heart, in him we live and move and have our being so that when you jump back into the river, you're not splashing again, but you can actually swim and you can notice the beauty that you noticed while you were sitting on the shore. There's a way to send emails or to, I don't know, do data analysis and statistic configuration or whatever Chandler Bing does. There's a way to do that where your heart is rejoicing your heart is resting in God and you can do the things of the world without having the sacred secular divide. Stopping the busyness, hearing from the Lord, it's so that when you can jump back in, you can live by his word and walk by his spirit. So how do we do this? Number one, actually do it. Very practical. When you go to a place of solitude, don't take your phone, don't take the noise of the world and with you actually go get in solitude. Number two, plan for it. Again, very similar to silence. Don Whitney says, our day are usually filled with more than enough noise, plenty of hurry and demanding people unless we plan for daily times of, uh, of solitary silence before God. These other things will rush in and fill our time like water into the Titanic. So plan for it, figure out ways where you can, yeah, go room in your house or a walk that you like or things like that. Every one of you, by the way, can do this every single day. Uh, It's called 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. Every one of you can wake up early. And if you can't, go to bed earlier. It's very simple. If your TV show, if Netflix is so important that you can't wake up early, we have a bigger conversation to have. Every one of you can wake up and go get alone with your father. McShane again says to a pastor that he was writing to who was asking for advice says, above all, keep much in the presence of God. Never see the face of man till you have seen his face who is our life, our all. You can all wake up early. Number two, or next, seize the opportunities Right? It's hard for extroverts. Don't just fill open nights with things immediately. Plan. Say no to plans so that you can go be alone with God. And if you know, Christian friends think that's weird, realize that you know, there's some negatives to living in the Bible Belt. If getting alone with the Lord on a night is weird, reevaluate what a Christian actually is rather than what culturally Christians do here. Okay? Seize the opportunities. Take advantage of days like Sunday. Okay? We don't hold to the Sabbath that you're not allowed to do anything, but it's a day in our society that's already kind of set aside for the things of the Lord to stop the busyness of the work week. Take advantage of that. Get creative. Susanna Wesley uh, had 16 kids, and you've probably heard this story before. She would sit and pull her apron over her head, and that was her time to pray as the 16 were loud around her, and they knew they had been taught, you don't interrupt mom, and if you do, there's consequences. This is mom's time, okay? She just removed every excuse we could ever have for our busyness, okay? Fight for it. Again, I have a long uh, quote by Tozer there that I won't read about the necessity of solitude. So lastly, meditation. Shut, shut your mouth, silence. Shut the world's mouth, solitude. And then lastly, meditation. Soaking in what we hear, dwelling on what we hear. So you're sitting on the edge of the river and you don't just see the trees. You start to think, how many have rushed by these trees, these trees are here. Look how beautiful they are. I've never looked at in, in detail or the clouds or the birds or the wildlife. Actually begin to soak in the truth of God, filling your heart and your soul and your mind with the truths of God. The difference between Eastern meditation, some of us get scared at that word, even though it's a Bible word. The difference between Eastern meditation and Christian meditation is 
vast. Richard Foster, who wrote another book on spiritual discipline, says this. Whenever the Christian idea of meditation is taking ser- taken seriously, those who, uh, there are those who assume it is synonymous with the concept of meditation centered in Eastern religions. In reality, the two ideas stand worlds apart. Eastern meditation is an attempt to empty the mind. Christian meditation, notice this, is an attempt to fill the mind. Deuteronomy 6 and these are the words, I command, the words I command to you that shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on the frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. Over and over again, Israel being told, remember, think of, read, soak in the things of God that you would never have a moment where they aren't aren't on the forefront of your mind and you're not living by them. Okay, that's Christian meditation. It's not detachment. It's attaching yourself rather to God's word, taking time to let it soak in to your hearts. Uh, I think a beautiful example is Ephesians 1. Paul talking to Christians People who have already been converted says this. It's a prayer in Ephesians 1. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what are the immeasurable great and the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the works of his great might. And he keeps going, but we don't have time. Notice, he's talking to Christians. So many of us have the attitude of, I'm saved. You know, what's the point? Can I just go on living my life? Paul says, no, no, no. Here's what I pray for for you that your eyes would be opened to what you have been saved into, to the eternal riches of him that you have been brought to. I want you to see, I want all the truth that hangs above your head to soak into your heart. Notice those two things. That's meditation, just bringing in the truths of God. Why should we do this? Number one, obviously to know God and to know his word. Richard Foster If you feel that we live in a purely physical universe, you will view meditation as a good way to obtain a a consistent alpha brainwave pattern. But if you believe that we live in a universe created by the infinite personal God who delights in our communion with him, you will see meditation as a communion between the lover and the one to be beloved, to know God, to know his word. Number two, to walk as a child of God, Psalm 1, the first word in the book of Psalms. Blessed is the man who not walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, soaking in the truths of God, and we can live by them. Number three, to squeeze the Bible. Squeeze all the truth out of the Bible. There's a way, when you read a Bible passage quickly, you'll get something. There's a way to squeeze, to think on a truth that you think, oh, that's nice. Or, oh, wow, that's really big. To, to squeeze it until it makes you, you know, like Jared, weepy, right? Where you, you just can't, I'm not saying, okay. I wasn't using myself as the example. But to where it just, it's absolutely life-changing. My life will never be different after seeing this. This verse I've read a thousand times and all of a sudden now, Jesus has never been more glorious to me. I cannot continue in the same way. Often that comes through sitting and hearing over and over and over again, begging the eyes of your hearts to be enlightened. You see that. That happens through meditation. Spurgeon has a a quote there that I won't read, but meditation is that. It's the, the squeezing of the Bible to where you try and get every drop. Number four, to stir your affections or to stir up the joy of your salvation. Look at the attitude of Psalm 119, the psalmist here. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Look at the joy here. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand 
more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I, turn, uh, I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me how sweet, look at this, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. How sweet is the word of the Lord that I continually meditate on and how it makes me hate anything. Notice that last part, anything that would take away such joy. Several other verses there. I'll just read Psalm 63. We won't have time for questions. I apologize. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon your sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Notice verse 6. As I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Meditating not just to be smarter or not just to be writer, or not just to have the correct answers if you're battling an atheist or anything like that, but for the joy of being known by this God, the joy of communing with this God, meditating to stir up your affections. Number five, to expose the fleeting false pleasures of the world. The more you know him, the more you are known by him, the more you know his word, the more you will see the lies of the enemy for what they are. Something that would steal his glory and something that will steal your joy. I talked a couple weeks ago about, <laughs> oh, no, it was a membership class. A couple of my buddies years ago uh, in their young days uh, did a Pepsi cleanse. It was it, when cleanses became a big deal and they were like, I'll show society. And, right, Pepsi, soft drink, it's great, you know, it's, you do the taste test thing they did way back in the day, and it was the best one, right? Sweet to the taste, consume a lot of it, and your insides begin to rot, as theirs did within 48 hours, right? And they were begging for anything else, begging for salads, right? Begging for anything that was sustaining. When you taste and see the Lord's goodness, when you meditate on his word, when you see the beauty, when it becomes sweet to you like honey, you will hate the angel of light who attempts to draw you away, who whispers sweet lies, who scratches your itching ears. You will begin to see sin for what it is and you will begin to hate it more and more. McShane again says, live near, writing to that same pastor, live near to God. And so all things will appear to you little in comparison to, to eternal realities. Meditation exposes the lies of the world. So I've got how do we do it, and then what should we meditate on, and then we'll be done. So how to do it, quite simple. You just take a truth, take a biblical passage, and think through all the implications. So I have there Philippians 4, 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So you take that verse, you probably read it multiple times, and just think just squeeze it. Think of all the implications that could come out of it. How does this, what does this say about God? Peace of God. Who is a God that could give such peace? Can anybody else give such peace? No, he's unique in this sense. Why would he give peace when all I do is rebel against him? He must be infinitely merciful and good as well. What does it say about God? What does it say about you? What does it say about the world? What does it say about how you should live in the world in light of who that is? God is, just squeeze it for all the possible implications and then begin to say, okay, so this means, if this is true, I can, I don't have to be enraged by the latest Twitter controversy 
I can breathe. Why? Because God's, God's, the gates of hell will not prevail against his kingdom. God has seen moments like this before when he has somehow sustained his church. Uh, you know, some think Twitter's going to take down the church. I don't think so. And so, you know, you begin to, to see how should I live differently than I'm living right now. You take a truth. Think, take, think of the truth of you're adopted as his child. There's never a day where he's disappointed in you because you've been united to his perfect son and his perfect son's life has been given to you. He looks at you and it's as if you live the perfect life that Jesus lives. He's not a bad father. He's not an evil father. He doesn't have his arms crossed waiting for you to appease him. Jesus has already appeased him. You can run into his arms. He says, my beloved with whom I'm well pleased, my, my son, my daughter, adopted into the family. Think of a truth that's foundational to your life, that you've been forgiven, that you've been uh, regenerated, all the different things that are true about you. Think of your own story. Think of your own testimony. These dark times when I was so far from you, you, you saw that somehow, and you continually called me to yourself. You, you drew me in here when I met Jesus. That wasn't because I was looking for him. I wasn't even looking for him. And even when I thought I was looking for him, I was blind. That was really selfishness or pride. And you just think about your story and how God saw you from the hospital room until now and how he's sustained you. It's, you're sitting on the shore of the river and you look backwards. Oh, those, those rocks that I went through and I hit my leg and I thought I was drowning at that point. And you saw that. You saw all of it. Just think of your testimony and how he has saved you. There's, there's many different things you could take and just squeeze and meditate on until the truths of God come out and hopefully change your life. And then again, you will have to fight for it. Sometimes you'll sit in a room and God will feel far off and nothing will happen. And you'd be like, this is dumb. What was the other thing? Fasting? What was the other tech that I could try next? Right? You'll have to fight. The enemy will be very strong against this and you will have to battle him to shut his mouth as you try and hear God's words. And then what to meditate on? Lastly, I just have a list here. Meditate on the Bible. Take passages, take scriptures and squeeze them. Meditate on the gospel. Think about creation, fall, redemption, and eternity, where we're all going. Think about the gospel. Take passages that kind of summarize the gospel. Take Ephesians 2 and meditate on it. Meditate on who God is, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, passages on God's character. Meditate on sin in light of the gospel. Rebels, don't trust my heart. It's wicked. Yet, don't, don't stay there. You'll, you'll go down a, a dark hole. Take 10 looks at Christ. Turn back and see your sin in light of the gospel. See who he's made you, that you're forgiven, that you're adopted. Meditate on the joy of your salvation. You see that all the time in the Psalms. The psalmist just going through, he forgives all our iniquity, he heals all our diseases, he redeems our life from the pit, just going through the joy of salvation to try and stir his heart. Meditate on the church, that God would bring a family together that is thicker than your blood family that you're going to spend eternity with, the mission of the church, how God will be successful in his mission. There's no reason to stress as if God is not in charge and going to bring complete victory to his church at the end of the day, and then meditate on eternity. Live in light of it. Don't live as if you have 80 years, your life is a mist, a vapor, right? Live in light of eternity and live in light of the hope and the joy of eternity. The book of Revelation was given to a persecuted church to raise their eyes to one day all of your tears will be wiped as the dwelling place of God will be with man. Go to work. Wake up every day with that hope and that joy before your eyes. Meditate on eternity. There's a, a couple of things I thought of. You could think of more. Again, all of this is meant to simply set our eyes on the one who succeeds where we fail at all of these things. When we are loud, when we encourage the, the world's noise, when we don't meditate on him, we meditate on ourselves and the things that bring us temporal, fleeting, false happiness. He was perfect. He was tempted and he succeeded. He lives the perfect life. And we are meant to set our eyes on him who is our all. All of this is just to make you more like him and to love him more. And so I apologize that we went over. I'll pray for us uh, and then we will be done. But I love you guys. You can email questions.
By the way, some of you text that number because you think that's my number. That is not my number. And it's real weird. I get it in email form and it's all weird because it's a text message. And so I get fun texts during the week from you guys who are texting this number. And you're like, hey, can we hang out? And I have no way to get back to you because these are all anonymous. Anyway, let's pray. That's just a fun announcement right there at the end. Uh, Father, we thank you that literally all of this is because you speak. Every other religion in the world, they're false gods. They imagine them as far off. They have to do incredible things like child sacrifice just to maybe get an ear from those false, wicked gods. Not so with the true God of the universe. And so I pray that we would long for these things, not because we're such great Christians, but because we see how great you are. And we do see that we live by every word that comes from your mouth and we become desperate for it, like we'll be desperate for lunch if Jeff's sermon goes long. I pray that we would be a people of silence and a people of solitude and a people of meditation, that we don't just read your word to check something off, but because it is our food, And we are desperate for it because we're desperate for you. And I thank you that even in our failure, you've made a way by your son's perfection. I thank you that you don't just want us to perform well. You want communion with us. You you are our father. And you have brought us into your family when we did not want to be adopted. You overcame our stupidity and changed our hearts. You took away the heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh, gave us your spirit, united us to your son and brought us into your family. And so I pray that as we just think about that reality, it just, it, it, it changes our hearts and we would long to think about it more and we would long for it to bleed into our every day, not just our morning time, our quiet times, but in every Uh, every bit of our day, driving to work, disciplining a child, whatever it may be, we just want to be conformed into the image of your son and know the joy of being known by you. And so I pray that you would do that by your spirit in the name of your son. Pray it in his name. Amen.